Funding for the Hinckley Report is made possible in part by the George S. and Dolores Dore Eccles Foundation and the Cleone Peterson Eccles Endowment Fund. Thank you for listening to the Hinckley Report as a podcast. If you like what you hear, please subscribe at your go-to podcast platform. Promotional support for this episode of the Hinckley Report podcast is provided by Trib Talk, an award-winning news podcast from the Salt Lake Tribune. Join host Benjamin Wood, Tribune reporters, and community guests as they dive into the latest topics affecting Utahns. Find Trib Talk at sltrib.com or by searching for Trib Talk on most major podcast platforms. Tonight on the Hinckley Report. The race to become Salt Lake City's next mayor is down to the final days, and candidates are pounding the pavement to make a final bid for votes. After weeks of investigation and controversy, Congress takes a vote on the impeachment inquiry. And citizens react as more details emerge about plans for reforming Utah's tax structure. Good evening, and welcome to The Hinckley Report. I'm Jason Perry, director of the Hinckley Institute of Politics. Covering the week, we have Heidi Hatch, anchor with KUTV, Doug Wilkes, editor of the Deseret News, and Max Roth, anchor with Fox 13 News. Thank you all for being with us today. This, this distinguished panel has a lot to talk about. Uh, Max, I want to start with you on really the news of the day with a Utah lens. The, the House of Representatives and the United, the United States House of Representatives voted this week to start the procedure for impeachment. And we're hearing a lot about this nationally, but I want to get the Utah view on this thing. How are Utahns reacting uh, to this vote, which is not a vote to impeach, no. right? It's Explain what the vote is and how Utahns feel. Well, the, the, the vote is uh, setting forth the rules for the impeachment inquiry. And the unique thing in this case is that uh, the Congress is conducting the investigation prior to actually having hearings where they discuss articles of impeachment, essentially the charges that they could put against the president. And so it's, uh, it's a little more complex than past impeachment rules because it starts with an investigation in the Intelligence Committee open hearings they say they'll they'll conduct soon and then uh, go to the judiciary and uh, and they would write articles of impeachment and at that point you'd have the president's uh, uh, lawyers or lawyer involved uh, in in that inquiry and, and it sets out rules for the minority party being able to request witnesses that that sort of thing all of Utah's Republicans voted along the party lines um, against uh, approving these rules and Utah's lone Democrat Ben McAdams voted for it Okay. I think we better talk about that for just a minute. Uh, so, Doug, it, it is interesting. Uh, not a single Republican mm -hmm. voted for this. We had a couple Democrats that did vote against right. this, one independent. Explain the, the kind of the partisan nature of this thing and how you see this playing out. Well, this is the issue, right? I mean, people say they don't want it to be a political process, but impeachment by nature is a political process. So how do you overcome the weaknesses? Um, ben McAdams was very clear saying, look, he's not voting for impeachment. He wants the truth to come out. But others like uh, Chris Stewart and uh, John Curtis, they're saying, well, this isn't the way to get the truth out. John Curtis made a, um, Representative Curtis has his own signed on a legislation to get all the transcripts released from the depositions. But this is an issue of transparency versus weaponizing 
the hearings because if you're in a in a private setting and you're having a deposition taken you have a lot greater chance of getting the truth out in that so you bring it now in front of the public there's transparency that's a good thing but it fundamentally changes what's going to come out because you're going to have lawmakers posturing trying to give a four-minute speech and a 30-second question. So it'll be very interesting to see what happens now. Yeah, so, so Heidi, this this is interesting uh, because the Republicans are kind of setting this up as a question of process. And so I was curious about this weaponizing comment right there because it's not exactly talking about the substance right now, it's talking about the process. Yeah, I think when we think about weaponizing, this is a double-edged sword. When we want this public, I think we all want to air it in the sunshine. We want to get the facts. We know what's going on. But oftentimes, as you just said, it really is weaponized because instead of asking questions, Questions. Everyone goes in there, they make their speech. They're not really asking questions. They just want to say something and get it out there. So instead of getting to the substance of the matter, we're getting a lot of grandstanding going on. And so then you're like, well, are we wasting our time? But there's also that frustration of what goes on behind closed doors. If they were to release it now, John Curtis was saying, do we even have the hours and the time to go through and read it properly and understand before we make a vote? So there's problems with both sides. But when you think back to even our last uh, Supreme Court nomination and what we saw on TV, yeah. that was not probably the prettiest day for our country and I think we're probably headed down that path again I, and you know, I don't know if it's healthy. I was just going to say though that the, I, 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 uh, I'm going to disagree a little bit with that because the, the rules that they set out in this allow for each um, party, uh, the, the ranking member uh, of the minority party and the chair of the committee to have 90 minutes uh, together so each has 45 minutes for that one person or their legal staff to question and so you'll have have 45 minutes of uh, Democratic lawyer questioning, 45 minutes of a Republican lawyer questioning prior to anyone in the committee having their little five minutes to grandstand, which I agree is so really doesn't get much. And so I think that I think that could be helpful. And plus the fact that they're gathering information in advance means they they kind of set things out. This is more of a process of, of making things public when they already have the roadmap yeah. to it. So Heidi, what do, you, what do you think about that process? Because what you said is exactly right. Often in the in the Supreme Court hearings, for example, everyone's looking for their YouTube moment for, yeah. their, uh, for their campaigns. Do you feel like this is gonna provide some of that context? Because it seems like voters are looking for it the actual substance of the allegations. That is the truth because most of what we hear now, you pick your station, you watch, you're either Fox News, you watch CNN, and you get the spin and you really look for the information you want to hear. So if we can really get just an attorney in there who's asking questions, not grandstanding, I think that information will be helpful. But in the end, what makes it on television newscasts, I hate to admit it, but oftentimes it is those sound bites that are the grandstanding because you've got these short newscasts, you're trying to get through, you know what's happening. And unfortunately, what gets filtered down sometimes will be that because most people don't have time to sit down and read the transcript of that 45 minutes or watch the whole 45 minutes. Even someone who's in the news business, I don't always have my full day before I go to work at two in the afternoon to sit down and watch an entire hearing. I have to go run errands and grocery shopping to make sure my kids have done what they need to and not every human has time to sit down and listen to these full hearings. Yeah, that is yeah. true. Yeah, you, you, you made the question, what do Utahns think, right? This is, this is where it's gonna be important. What is the public going to do with this information? Because even though their two attorneys may be doing the questioning, yeah. they're going to be prepped by their by their parties. And so the speculation is that this will entrench the, the voters on Trump's side because they'll think, depending on how the questioning goes, are they attacking my president? 
And on the other side, can the Democrats say, well, they really are trying to get at the truth. We're not starting from a nonpartisan yeah. place, and that's the difficulty. Although, but, the, oh, I, I think the public is less partisan on this than Congress is, because the, the, when, when you look at national yeah. polls, at least, yeah. there's been real movement towards supporting the inquiry and even supporting impeachment and removal. Uh -huh. But let's get to this point a little bit uh, with where our elected officials are, Doug, because you, you mentioned a moment ago that Ben McAdams, Congressman McAdams, yeah. actually made a statement. I, I want to show the tweet and have you give your comment on that since you brought this up, because he's trying to find a, a spot here that is safe for him going forward, you know, with his principles, of course. But I, I want to read this tweet. Uh, Congressman McAdams said, I voted yes. This is not a vote for or against impeachment. It's to get all the facts on the table so Utahns can judge for themselves. I will not prejudge the outcome. And he gives some notes. Transparency, due process, constitutional duty of oversight. Right. That's a good position for him to take. But even that has already been taken now. And um, the Republican side has tried to say, Ben McAdams is making the same vote as Nancy Pelosi and others, and they're trying to make him far, far left. So the Republicans are trying to weaponize it against him. He, I think, to his credit, is not trying to do that at this time. He very much wants to get at the truth. But I also think the Republican congressional delegation wants to get at the truth. They just don't think this process is the way to do it. If, you know, the two most interesting members of the delegation on this, I believe, are the two who've actually been sitting in on these meetings, John Curtis, because he's on foreign relations, mm -hmm. and Chris Stewart. And the reason I think they're most interesting, first of all, Stewart has really dug in in support of the president on this. He was on Fox News yesterday after this vote was taken. And he, he said, uh, when posed with the hypothetical uh, that, the, that the president did, in fact, say, you don't get your $400 million until you investigate Joe Biden. And honestly, we're very close to having that established, if all the reports are correct, and just even reading the statements that we have from those witnesses who have come forward. Stewart, uh, in, in given that uh, scenario, said, you know what, if that's the case, and uh, it was, it's perfectly appropriate to uh, withhold or to hold back that money uh, in order to investigate corruption, and if that happens to involve a U.S. person, that's okay, U.S. person being Joe Biden. And so um, that's, that is actually Chris Stewart stepping out further on that substance limb rather than process limb, and uh, I was surprised to hear him say that because, you know, essentially uh, the, you're, you're saying withhold military aid to a country that's been invaded by Russia and whose uh, primary defense is that they have America's strong support, uh, you're saying, yeah, withhold that aid until you investigate this thing that's important to me. I don't know if he went that far, though, Max, and he was clear to say he does not feel like he needs to be a defender of Trump, though there's no question the past six months he, he, has, he been, has been out front. He's been one of the Republicans on CNN. Uh, defending the president. He so specifically it's, said it's $400 million, withhold $400 million in order to investigate corruption. If that involves a U.S. person, that's, a, that's appropriate. That's exactly what he said. Right, but that's a slice different than did he ask the, um, to investigate Biden or his son. So I think even Chris Stewart is trying to parse it. Yeah, but do we have, is there any, has there been any suggestion from anything we've heard of what the president has asked for other than investigating Biden and his son and 
a crazy conspiracy theory involving Ukraine rather than Russia being behind what really went wrong in the 2016 election. Those are the only two things that we have on record from the White House in that supposedly perfect phone call that uh, that we know they wanted to investigate. So this is why we need the truth to come That's out, right? That's right. We've got to have these open hearings. <laughs> but one thing that Utahns should know about is that John Curtis, who was a part of this on the Foreign Relations Committee, was taken out by that vote yesterday. Mm -hmm. So he will no longer be a part of that questioning. They won't be in front of his committee. And so he said that Utah, essentially by those rules, lost a vote. And I think that was something he was frustrated about and wanted to be in there digging for answers himself. Uh -huh. uh, while you're talking about Congressman Curtis, uh, just a moment about something you brought up. He did put forward a resolution, and I think Doug, you yeah. referenced this also, to make sure that all the transcripts, all the recordings are available to every member of, of Congress. Of course, they all didn't get yeah. those before the vote. But so now we've got this stuff, but he said that even we know that Congress turns very slowly, slower than the wheels of justice, but an act of Congress to get something released, it's going to take a long time. And how far we have until we get to an actual vote on whether we're going to go to a full impeachment inquiry. The question is, how quickly will they release that and how many hours of it is? And that's yeah. one of his concerns that he wants this out in the daylight so people can see what work's been done, what real answers are out there. But there's a lot of information we're going to have to dig through if that is released, yeah, which true puts forth a lot of hard work, but I think a lot of people are hoping that he is successful because there is a lot of information they've gathered already. Okay, yeah. let's switch gears. Let's go to a local race. Doug, we gotta, we're gotta we gonna have a new Salt Lake City mayor soon in the very near future, but I wanna go through a couple of these things because it's very interesting, the dynamic this has changed, that this has taken uh, because we have two very well-liked candidates in Aaron Mendenhall and Luz Escamilla. Um, a, a comment about a, a letter that went out to Salt Lake City residents this week because since uh, there's a lot of similarity in the policies. It starts getting to some of these other attributes. Uh, a letter went out uh, uh, from members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, just to members of uh, the people who live in Salt Lake City, in support of Mendenhall. Why did that come out now, and what kind of impact? Well, one of the key, one of the issues in the race brought up by Rocky Anderson at the start of the race was should Salt Lake City have a, a, a mayor who's a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? It hasn't happened in decades. Well, that offended both candidates because there's no religion test to be mayor. And Luz Escamilla is a member of the church. Um, Aaron Mendehall is not. Both were very forthcoming and saying, look, we will both work with the church. The church is a major property uh, holder, um, a major player. And quite frankly, you know, um, Salt Lake City is the center of a global religion. One of the most interesting things is there are some who believe that Utah is great in spite of the church and others believe that it's great because of the church. I believe it's great because of the church and both of those mayors want to capitalize on that. Okay. How do they use this one, Max? Because this has become an issue. Well, you know, it's. Uh, it, it, I, I agree that the the suggestion from uh, uh, from Mayor Anderson was was problematic because you're talking about a, a religious test, and it really anything like this really should be about what the person will do and not who they are in terms of their personal faith. Um, as I, I was. Googling this morning, and I and I started Googling Aaron Mendenhall, uh, and and as soon as I got into the Menden, it's the suggested search was Aaron Mendenhall Mormon, um, which just says that that's what people are looking for. Um, it's a it's a, a legitimate issue in the city to talk about how well you will work with the LDS Church because the LDS Church is the biggest player in downtown development. And uh, you know what? Anyone who looks at Salt Lake City's downtown and how, how beautiful it is, uh, you know, they're 
pretty lucky that there's yeah. uh, that there is a major player there who's never going to let it go that far downhill. So you need someone who's going to be able to work with those organizations. Have to work together. Yeah. Uh -huh. So Heidi, I want to I want to kind of give some context here because it's so interesting. We have this conversation when uh, there's a recent Utah policy poll that went through each one of these candidates. I just want to get your thoughts about this because it comes to these other factors. There are things like are the candidates trustworthy and honest. 66% of Utahns say both of them are. 62% uh, of Utahns say they work well with others. 55 that they care about people. I thought it was interesting. 41% say they share our beliefs. Uh, Aaron Mendenhall is, is is ahead in most of these categories, but but the number of people say I like them is really interesting because no one really has negatives. No, and I think maybe it's because we don't know enough about them. I think sometimes once they're in office, maybe those will change a lot, but until they're on the big stage where they're making big decisions, maybe that will change. But I think that they're both women who um, people like, they're likable women. and. Um, I think sometimes that matters when you're looking at these things. And I think that when people are looking at them, I think they do see a lot of good and they've seen what they've both done in their previous jobs. The question is the unknowns they have with them. And I think that's where we have so many undecideds too, yeah. because there's a lot of things on those likability scale that they get those bonus points, but people don't know them that well. And I think that's why we have 20 odd percent and maybe more who are saying, I don't know which one I'm going to vote for. Yeah. They both seem nice. I think <laughs> I'd let them hang out at my house. Okay. Yeah. While I was doing my Googling um, uh, and, I, and, and, and looking yeah. at them, yeah, yeah, you know, it's, uh, uh, there, there's, uh, you, you look at the branding when you wonder why is somebody ahead, why is someone not, uh, when there's a similar name recognition. Uh, and uh, uh, Aaron Mendenhall very clearly, right up front, puts herself as uh, the clean air candidate. The clean air candidate, um, and uh, and there's not something quite like that with uh, Escamilla that I that I see, and I think that might be an advantage. Mm -hmm. She does have. I mean, she would be the first. Uh Latina to be the mayor of Salt Lake City. She's from the west side. She very much has the interest of the west side. The inland port is out of the west side. Mm -hmm. Both the candidates have many similarities, but Luz Escamilla being in, you know, up in the legislature, bringing that sensibility and trying to work together. Aaron Mendehal from her um, perch on the Salt Lake Council being able to go the other way. Yeah. So you do have a choice here that's kind of interesting, but the fact that we have two credible candidates is a wonderful thing. Yeah, yeah. it's good for the city. But Heidi, uh, our county clerks are reporting that very slow in terms of the numbers of ballots that are coming in. Is this a reflection, do you think, of the fact that we've got two key candidates, we haven't made up our mind, or, or maybe I, worse, that people are just not going to engage on it? I'm a little concerned that people are not going to engage, and I think that's where these final days of the election are going to matter. And I think when you have that many people undecided and maybe there's not something that's pushing them out the door, we don't have to walk out the door to vote anymore. We've got the ballot sitting on our counter. So what I think they're really going to have to do is go meet people and knock on their doors and wear their shoes out in the next few days because I think a lot of those people are. They're looking at them on the news. They're thinking they both seem nice. They both have good ideas. But when you look at the percentage of voters who actually go and listen to the debates that have been happening, I think it's very small. There are people who are very involved. They know the issues. But otherwise, the other voters are trying to decide, which one do I like better? And it might be the person who their campaign knocks on the door and gets them to actually go rip open the ballot that's on their counter and get it turned in. Otherwise, I think a lot of them are gonna end up in the garbage in the next week. Okay. Yeah. We need people to send those in. I, okay. think, I think they'll vote, actually. I think we saw it in the primary, people vote late. And these two candidates have met many, many debates. What was the number? 14. 14 debates. Yeah. And there's a long tail to those debates because those go onto the websites of the different yeah. media groups. And so there's a lot of information out there. Okay, uh, speaking of lots of information, tax reform. 
Too much information to digest. Too much already. So, Max, uh, the task force is meeting next week. Mm -hmm. The speaker is of the House, Brad Wilson, yeah. wants to have a special session in yeah. December. Mm -hmm. uh, tell us a little bit about kind of what's what's in play and why December when you got a session starting in January? Well, uh, December because they want uh, new income tax rates to go into effect in the new year. So, uh, so they would like to have something done so that by January 1st, all of us on our, uh, you know, in our paychecks will, uh, will start being taxed differently. And it would be a, a lower income tax rate while, um, while not, not necessarily raising the sales tax, but uh, putting the sales tax back on certain items that it hasn't been on. And uh, mainly, I mean, the, the big one is food, groceries. And that is a big point of concern for advocates for the poor. Yeah, so, so it is. So Heidi, that has been a, a, a source of some complaint. It was off for a while. Maybe they offset it, offset it with some tax credits. but And it's a big percentage. And the only thing I can think that they would want to do this in December is that it's easier to argue that they can raise these taxes in places that are difficult, where it's something that makes you survive. If you're like, look, you have this much more money in your bank account, because if they try to make all these adjustments at one time and you don't know how much more you're getting in your paycheck and how much less you're going to have for groceries, I think if they make that one adjustment, they're hoping that people will see, okay, you've got this much more in your paycheck, you can make that. But I think making any argument where you're trying to make food uh, more expensive for people is a tough one because when you don't have a lot of money, an extra dollar to three dollars, and they say for low to middle income people, an extra maybe 175 to 250 a year, mm -hmm. that's a lot of money when you don't make a lot of money. It's a big difference. Uh, speaking of the people in, in terms of salary, Doug, that, that is something that has been on the minds of people because people making over $100,000 a year, which are going to get the biggest share of this potential cut. Well, I, I mean, there's a lot of issues surrounding the taxes. I think they're, from their perspective, they're smart to go early. Because what's going to happen here is taxes are going to, people are going to reject taxes. This morning you had Elizabeth Warren talking about trillion yeah, dollars right. for health care and saying, well, it won't affect the middle class, but we're going to tax the rich. You had South Salt Lake City in the past two weeks talking about a tax increase um, to help out there. You have the mayor of Salt Lake County, yeah. Jenny Wilson, saying we need a tax increase, 30%. So. All of a sudden, people are going to start to go, wait a minute, you just rose, raised my taxes in December. Now these municipalities or school districts, they may get, they may get put off because of that. Um, that wasn't the question you asked me, though, was it? <laughs> but, th but that's a very good <laughs> yeah, point. It's, good it's point. a very yeah. good point. And Max, as we get ready to go into sort of election year for some of these candidates, if we have all these cities raising yeah. these rates, but yeah, our... our Yes. Mm -hmm. You know, it's um, and, and uh, what do people feel? The big question is, what do people actually feel is hitting them? Is it when they go to the grocery store and they see that uh, the same thing that they buy, it's, uh, you know, every every two weeks, you know, you get your your top ramen and your pork chops and your stuff for salad and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and uh, and and this time it's one hundred and ten dollars instead of one hundred dollars. Is that what you feel hits you more or is it that you have, uh, you know, a few dollars more in your uh, in your paycheck. I don't know the answer uh -huh. to that. A, these are some yeah. tough questions. Uh, another tough issue, Heidi. Uh, we've had rec record cold uh, yeah. here in, in Utah, and this issue of uh, decisions made on closing homeless shelters, the road home yeah. in particular. So we have a, a need, and shelters not available. How are elected officials approaching this one right now? Because it's a hard one. They're approaching it in a way where they're asking people to come help them, landlords. And I don't know exactly how this is going to work because I'd like to say first off, this is a complicated issue. They're obviously 
trying to solve a lot of different problems with homelessness. We're talking about drug um, addiction problems. We're talking about trying to get people the mental health they need. And we have some beautiful new centers opening, but what they didn't account for is they thought that people would be coming and going, but they're nice, beautiful centers. They're nice places to stay. You feel safe and they're staying. So now they have hundreds of extra people where they have to put them. And they're saying, okay, let's start um, paying rent and we'll put them in apartments. But that makes me wonder, are there really that many low income apartments out there? I don't think there are. There's waiting lists for a lot of them. There's people worried about um, the process of going through a normal background check to get them into these apartments. And then once you get them into the apartment, how do you live? I think about the fact that I've sent a daughter off to college in the last couple of years, and she was going to a place that already had a bed, a couch, and a dresser, but we still had to think about, oh, we need silverware, we need dishes, oh, you need a shower curtain if you want to use the shower. Where is all of this going to come from? And I don't think it just materializes. So I think they've got a lot of problems of trying to figure out what to do with these people who still need help. And there could be hundreds of them, and possibly, I mean, up to a thousand. It's hard to tell how many there's going to be, but there are some major concerns as we try to not look back, close the road home, move forward. But if we move forward, where do these people go? Yeah, so what do they do, Doug? Because uh, Lieutenant Governor Spencer Cox took a lead role in yeah. the, kind of the efforts here. So did uh, Greg Hughes. There's a lot of people taking a lead role. You, you have um, Scott Howell, um, Downtown Alliance, uh, you have the Chamber. Everyone is stepping up to try and help. And there was actually an appeal to the community. We need landlords to help us. And actually, got an email from Scott talking about some of that help coming forward. There are vouchers for hotels. I think it's a smart move to close the road home, and then you have to solve the problem. I don't think that there's going to be people who are going to stay out homeless because they can't find a bed. They'll stay out because they want to stay out. And I live downtown. I see all those folks. Mm -hmm. I know some of them by name. But you have to do something. You have to make yeah. use of the, we're just in the beginning part, right? These centers are just coming online. Will they work? I don't know that. I hope so. Do they have enough money? Probably not enough yet, but you have to start. And if you extend the road home, I don't think you're gonna have the motivation. I think you need to actually go see someone cold and say, okay, I'm gonna put you in a hotel tonight and then what do we do tomorrow? Yeah, and the bet they've made is uh, we, we have this group, they have a problem um, and that problem is not that they don't have a place to sleep tonight. The problem is that they don't have a home. Mm -hmm. And right. so, so they want to solve that I don't have a home problem. And so this new philosophy is that they actually transition those people. But at the outset, and they knew this would happen, there's a bottleneck because, uh, because you have these new centers and uh, they haven't transitioned anyone yet. So everyone is still in this, I need a place tonight. And so uh, the, there are groups that are stepping up. Um, this has already been, Road Home hasn't been taking women for weeks now. And uh, St. Vincent de Paul Center has been uh, having an emergency shelter uh, mm -hmm. in, in their space, letting people yeah. sleep Near there. capacity. Yeah, think, yeah, yeah. And so they'll have to find something. I, uh, I don't believe that, uh, that our community is going to let people uh, uh, who, who need a place, a warm place to be on a cold night is going to let them uh, just yeah. not have it. If anything, it might be coming at a good time because I think that while we should be thinking of others year round, when we get to November and December, we're more willing to think of others. So I'm hopeful that they'll turn to the community, maybe find neighborhood groups, church groups, school groups yeah. who are willing to step up yeah. and maybe fill in the gap because I think there's going to be a lot of that gap that has to be filled in with making sure people have what they need to be where they're at because otherwise I don't know where the government can do it on its own right now with these people that are going to need places to go, things to keep them alive. Mm -hmm. Because once you are in a home, you still have to feed yourself. You don't have a, a soup kitchen a block away to walk to. So there's a lot of questions and ifs of how you make it work. Mm -hmm. Doug, the last two seconds, political consequences for our elected officials on this one? 
Well, I think um, we've questioned uh, our mayoral candidates in, in a strong way. Both want to solve the problem. There's differences, but what can the state do? What can the city do? But they have to work together to get it done. All right. But yeah, if we leave people cold, then it's political consequences for all of us. It could yeah. ma matter for the gubernatorial election, though. Yeah. We'll yeah. watch it closely. It's going to be the last word. Thank you for your insights today. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode of The Hinkley Report. If you like listening to the experts talking about the issues, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast app.